0: So the first thing you see when you look at a famous person is actually yourself. It's your own assumptions, your desires, your wants, your, your needs. And I have been living in this bubble for my entire life, you know, where people always just kind of saw their reflection in me of what they wanted me to be.
1: Welcome to the News Not Noise podcast. I'm Jessica Yellen. Are beauty standards changing? Why do so many women feel unseen as they get older? And how do we manage anxiety in this social media age? In this conversation, I discuss all this with longtime supermodel Paulina Porskova as we dive into her debut nonfiction book, No Filter, The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful. It's a moving collection of essays and observations about life. With a raw account of the obstacles she overcame and some of her struggles today, Porzkova is candid about the pressure she feels to be authentic in the public eye. We also chat about coping mechanisms for taming anxiety, fighting ageism, embracing vulnerability, and finding your voice. I hope you find our conversation inspiring. Paulina, this book is so beautiful. It's this collection of essays and observations about life that's just, it's honest, it's compassionate, it's revealed, and I think it's really humble and self-aware. You must feel really proud, excited, nervous. How are you doing right now? (laughs) Well, you've just pretty much said it. Proud, excited, nervous, Uh, terrified, exhilarated. You know, the whole the whole thing, really. I know. It's hard to come out with a book. And I can't imagine it this one is so honest about your life. For folks who, who haven't read it or explored it yet, you have this unbelievable personal story where you were separated from your parents by communism as a little kid. You became a famous political poster child and then had one of the world's biggest modeling careers beginning at 15. You marry a global rock star, and it's all played out in the public eye. And you're now emerging with your own authentic voice so of all of that i feel like that's backstory but the book is really about something else in your view what is the book about and why did you write it
0: all right so uh let me just start with why i wrote it um because maria shriver called me like out of the blue i was just like sitting here uh in my garden and i get a phone call from maria shriver and i was like "Is this a prank call or something Why would Maria Shriver be calling me? Am I a bad Democrat? What's going on? But it turns out that she was following me on Instagram, and she said, "I really love what you're doing on Instagram, and I have my own imprint, and uh, on which I'm going to only publish uh, a few books a year, and I would like for you to be, you know, one of the first titles in my first year. Um, And so, can you, you know?" And she wanted me to write it sort of like I write my Instagram. Uh, she, you know, she, it wasn't a tell-all memoir that she was offering me. She was like, write it, you know, write the way that you write Instagram. And I thought that sort of inspired me because I was like, I was writing into Instagram, you know, every day anyway. So I thought this would allow me some more depth and some more time to really delve into the topics that I deal with on Instagram. So that is the why. <laughs> and then I was presented with a challenge of, oh, and can you do it in three months? So.
1: Right. No problem. Sure. I'll bare my soul in three months. Well, you know, my last
0: book, my novel only took me five years. So why shouldn't I be able to write a book in three months? Right. Uh, But I saw that as a, as a challenge. I was like, can I write a book in three months? I had no idea, but I was, uh, I was up for trying. And for the second part of the question, which is, was, it's like what I'm trying to, what, what is it that I'm trying to um, uh, have my readers take away from the book? I think um, I, I think a part of that is, is about assumptions, about how people make assumptions about, you know, based on themselves, based on who they are, based on their trajectory, their childhoods, their, you know, their, their social circles and i felt like if i if i gave away all my secrets and if i was really vulnerable and i just kind of went into it maybe somebody would get the idea that things are not always what they seem to look under to open the book and read it instead of just staring at the cover which is what my whole life had been it was like you know i was a one dimensional photograph i was a cover and I never really got to be a person underneath all of that, and so I think that that would be my hope for a takeaway on this book is you know there we are all all of us have a story. don't make
1: a judgment just just because it's easy to do it's beautiful, and you do you achieve it in the book uh. You've had, as you're saying, this very public life, and one of the quotes that really stood out to me when I was reading it is, um, you wrote, when I was the most seen, I felt the least heard. Would you explain that and h- what that did for you inside, what the inner experience of that was?
0: Well, I mean, I think this is, again, it, 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 you know, it, it's kind of like what, what I'm just talking about. You're picking up exactly on on, on that aspect of it. It's that, um, I I have an essay in the book um, about fame and about how you as a famous person, um, you come kind of encased in a soap bubble. And the soap bubble is uh, translucent on the outside and it's reflective. So the first thing you see when you look at a famous person is actually yourself. It's your own assumptions, your desires, your wants, your, your needs. And I have been living in this bubble for my entire life, you know, where people always just kind of saw their reflection in me of what they wanted me to be. You know, I was the famous political refugee, so people wanted me to be the, you know, incredibly grateful little child that got to come to Sweden and, you know, start life anew, reunited with my parents without actually knowing that the full story was that I was taken away from the only parent I knew, which was my grandmother and my parents split up the moment we arrived in Sweden. Uh, I was called a dirty communist in school, and I was, um, this was one of the the periods of my life where where I was suicidal, where I was that sad. And then, of course, you know, becoming a model and having an enchanted, glamorous, wonderful life where everything was so easy for me because I was young and beautiful and rich when, in fact, I was, you know, a, a teenager with daily panic attacks, and I was terrified And work consisted as much of sexual harassment as it did actually making photos. Um, All of those things are not immediately apparent when you just look at someone. Uh, So, yes, there were, you know, there were times in the 80s and 90s where I would have three covers out simultaneously on the newsstand. And uh, so I was certainly seen. But what was actually happening behind the covers was um, not heard at all.
1: You mentioned the anxiety attacks, panic attacks, and I really wanted to talk to you about that. We'll get into the beauty industry and and you know your experiences there. But I found this part of your writing so powerful because I rarely hear people talk about it this way. I want to read this for folks listening and then ask you about it. You write, I'm often told I'm a brave person for modeling nude, but that is not what takes courage for me. That is not where I need to muster all my strength and be brave. For me, bravery is leaving the house. One of the themes you hit on is how you struggled consistently with anxiety and What's so unique about this is you don't write about it as a past tense experience. All the time we see these people who come out and they say, I struggled with mental illness, but now I've solved my problems and I'm much better and I can talk about it, or it's all gone and I can talk about it. And you say you still grapple with this stuff. So would you talk a little bit about when they started and how you came to live with this anxiety?
0: Well, they started when I was 10 years old uh, and I had uh, been in Sweden for about a year I didn't know the language. My parents, you know, were split up. My mother was a single mother. She didn't have any time for us. I was sort of stuck raising my little brother and learning the language and going to school and sort of learning all this new stuff. And I felt so utterly, utterly alone in in, in sort of trying to navigate this new world. And the first panic attack was at my father's house. And again, my dad was this guy that I barely knew. He left me when I was three years old. And... Um, And once uh, we reunited in Sweden, he left immediately again because he had fallen in love with somebody else but my mother. And so it was like kind of like being, you know, being at at the house with some distant uncle. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was in the middle of the night and I woke up and I thought I was going to die. I just thought I was dying. I was like, "This, this was it. I thought I had some sort of a heart condition that was going to kill me. Um, because of the severity and, you know, of course, when you're anxious about the anxiety, it just ratches everything up a notch. So I spent most of the night laying on the bathroom floor and sort of gasping for breath and, um, waiting to die. Uh, it's, you know, recounting it, it's like, it's obviously I didn't die. So, so things are okay, but the terror of being a child at you know being 10 and not having anywhere to go with this it's like I didn't dare to go and wake up my father to tell him that I might be dying because I already felt like he didn't like me so like you know I I don't know what I I just I was afraid I was afraid that that was going to make me even less desirable than I already was um and then my mother was studying to be a nurse so I read her medical text and diagnosed myself with um heart arrhythmia. I thought that sounded about right (laughs) And so, and then I just, I thought, okay, so I have this health condition that is probably going to kill me at some point soon, and I don't really know when. Um, And that provoked more anxiety, of course. So, and I lived with that uh, into my, well, into my teens. And it wasn't until I met my husband, who um, was actually, was the one who diagnosed me. He's like, you know, those, that thing that you feel where you feel so bad. That's actually called panic attacks, and I have them too. And I was like, "Oh!" Then I went to a doctor, and 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 actually had it uh, medically diagnosed. It's like, yes, it's 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 just anxiety. It's funny how just anxiety, how terrifying just anxiety can be. But with my husband, we both had panic attacks, and we sort of bonded in some strange way. On, on top of everything else, of course, it was. Uh, It was a a sense of safety I had with him because he knew what I was going through, and he knew to wait it out, and he knew to hold my hand, and and he knew what I needed, and I knew what he needed, and so we sort of braved the anxiety part together, unaware that we could actually do anything about it, except to white-knuckle it, as I now call it, and then I got into my um, 40s, um, and I think maybe the perimenopause, hormone shifting, all, all of that stuff, and also I had been a wife and a mother, and in my early 40s, I wrote my novel, pu- wrote and published my novel, and then I was on America's Next Top Model and, and Dancing with the Stars, and all of this, you know, I was sort of coming back a, a little bit, trying my back into the public, and boy, I got slammed big time. And this is when I literally, I was I was so, um, I, I was agoraphobic, and I was... Uh, like I was every kind of phobic you could imagine. So, so at this point, I went to the doctor and said, "Okay, I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm I can't leave my house." And then I was prescribed Lexapro and Effexor um, together, a little cocktail. Uh, I don't. I, I remember taking it and and thinking, "Okay, well, nothing much is happening." And then about three or four weeks later, I realized that that insistent hum of these. Of the fluorescence that that's anxiety to me just cut out. It was gone. It had disappeared. And so I spent the following three to four years sort of happily insulated from the anxiety that it did take the anxiety away. But it also took away some other things that I found rather important, <laughs> like um, wanting to write, wanting to create, or um, or wanting to have sex or um, or even like really engaging on that on that on a deep level because um when I huh it, you know getting into getting into conversations or arguments with people I would just sort of I was able to just shrug it off and go well that's your opinion and you're entitled to your opinion and I'm entitled to mine and sort of walk away which only later did I discover I was like that, but that's not really me. That's not who I actually am. So it provided me with it. Provided it gave me a vacation. It gave me a really nice long vacation from anxiety, so that I could figure out that I'm actually better off living with, it
1: because working with it,
0: working with it because yeah. the person that I am is an anxious person
1: yeah it's interesting i I get panic attacks too. Oh, and really. I've gotten them since um, I guess for twenty years, my dad died of lung cancer and he couldn't breathe, and that was his biggest fear in life was to be lose your breath. And after he died, I started getting panic attacks, which still exist to today. But it's what shifted for me was the way I think about them as they're happening. And for me, it's all about shifting the inner dialogue. Are you able to explain what you do with your inner dialogue to manage through them?
0: Well, I mean, I think the, I think for me, the biggest shift back into anxiety was just the acceptance of it, that I am an anxious person. This is what it feels like to have an anxiety attack. This is an anxiety attack. I'm not dying. Uh, it's not going to kill me. At worst, it'll it's gonna pass. pass out, right? But that always helps. Um, and also the fact that I made a choice like I actually had which is the miracle of modern modern medicine right like I had a choice to 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 silence my anxiety or to live with it and I made a choice to live with it but it was a choice I I knew that I could go back and silence it if I ever was so poorly off that I had to so that you know now when my anxieties flare up my anxiety attacks. Invariably, when I'm going to the airport and when I'm on the subway, if the subway stops, you know, as it does in New York all the time, middle of the tunnel, the lights go out, somebody goes, <laughs> <laughs> I, I will be covered in sweat and I will not be able to breathe. And so is it the claustrophobia or is it just the thought of being stuck? It's not having control. Right. Any situation in which I am not in control will bring up anxiety. And then sometimes... Just random, like for absolutely no reason whatsoever, right? Or no reason that you can discern.
1: You tell this amazing story in the book about running into a woman in her 30s in a bar where she recognizes you, but it's not from your modeling days. She says, you're the lady who cries on Instagram, which is so classic. And um, and it's, it's great. She knows you for who you are with your voice today. Uh, one of the things that I found so interesting was how much of an overwhelmingly positive response you've gotten for being so revealed on Instagram and sharing emotional pain there. So many people can relate to it. So many people feel seen and heard and relieved by watching somebody as famous and seemingly having it all together as you sharing this. Right. And yet you also get a response from people who say it's too much. Are you okay? Why do you think culturally we react with a shaming response when people share pain and grief? Well, I think we're
0: culturally now programmed or deprogrammed from being sensitive to pain, uh, being sensitive to death. I, I really do think that this is like such a big issue. Um, you know, I, I think back like 100 years ago when I wasn't alive, not that old, <laughs> but you know, uh Back in time, you were confronted with death daily. You know, you had to kill your own meat. You, um, you know, women died in childbirth. That was like all the time. Your children died from like silly diseases that we now can cure. Uh, people were dying. I think you were exposed to the potential of death everywhere, all the time in life. So that was like it came with living, right? And I think now we've sort of managed with modern interventions and hospitals and and great new drugs and surgery and all of that we've managed to distance ourselves from the painful part of death and we no longer know how to deal with the pain we don't know how to deal with pain you can medicate pain i mean when has that ever been possible to medicate pain i mean fantastic that it does but it also has left us i believe um unable to cope with it, and also I'm able to cope with other people in pain, and this is what I saw a lot of when I was at my very worst, when I was in really dark days, was how how much grief terrifies people. People who are not in the grief club, it's like an infectious disease. It's like you have the plague. Um. So if you need anything, I'm right here, and you call me. Okay. Bye. Right. I mean, that's. You either get that the distancing or you get people trying to fix it um you know why don't we go out and you know why don't you take a dance class and why don't you why don't you do this oh and and then platitudes grief is love with nowhere to go and <laughs> in a better place and every time I heard that I still wanted to give the person a finger and I knew right, I but God damn save your breath so I think. When you have entered the Grief Club, however, you know. And I just happened to be in it and processing it in a worldwide pandemic. So I was not alone. I was not the only person to be suffering. and I was not the only person that was dealing with death and grief. There was a lot of us out there. And and because I was so isolated and so lonely and so desperate, it's like you can't even have your friends to hold you. Um, I turned to social media, and remarkably, it held me back. it it cradled me back. People came on and shared their own stories of grief and what was happening to them. and then you know, sometimes it was death, sometimes it was divorce, sometimes it was heartbreak. and we were sort of you know we were we were out there sort of holding each other's hands through the, through the internet as, as much as one can.
1: And it, to me, it, it, it saved me. Let's talk about the beauty industry because um, first your book, No Filter, you have a view um, that I think is so interesting, which is that people should do what they want with their beauty choices, but be transparent about it. Would you explain?
0: Well, again, this is again, because we, In in these amazing modern times, we actually have a choice about what we look like. I mean, when has that ever happened before? Uh, It's really quite remarkable. And aging as a woman is seen as, I guess it's almost seen as a disease. Because as you age, you are um, aging out of visibility. Um, And it's like something that can be fixed fixed and if it can be fixed should it be fixed I, I, I mean I don't think any you know like you know my grandmother didn't have a choice about whether you know she wanted to have wrinkles or not but I do so this is a really strange place to be and it's a really odd point in life um or in our times where where all of this is available and and we can and we can have access to it comes down to what shaped you what formed you who you are and how how you feel about yourself but for me I've I I have been called beautiful I was called ugly too when I was a kid so and 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 nothing in me changed you know from going from ugly to beautiful was literally from Sweden to Paris it was a couple of hundred miles and I was one thing
1: oh really you didn't have like a growth spurt or
0: no no literally at 14 and a half I couldn't get a date in school. I was called a dirty communist. I had my head dunked in the toilet. And a week later, I was in Paris, and I was beautiful. And I remember standing in front of the mirror going, I look exactly the same. So this is not about me at all. This is about the perception of other people. That was kind of a good, it was a good lesson, I think. It was something that kind of stuck in my mind. And now I feel like, so in your Circa in your mid-40s, you start feeling invisibility creep in, the invisibility of an older woman. And so we have two ways to go about it, right? Either you will fix the invisibility part, which is you go and, you know, get a little Botox, a little fillers, um, stay a little younger looking so that you are not invisible yet. Uh, You get to stay at the main table for a little bit longer. Or you are going to accept that it is what it is. This is my face now and um, and either well no, no, we have three ways because you can then either embrace your invisibility. I have some friends that are like, I'm good. I'm great with being invisible. Like I don't have to try anymore. this is great. or you can like me, sort of tr- what I, I guess what I'm trying to do is represent my age, a woman of a certain age that, hasn't done anything just so that there is some representation of what 57 actually looks like because I don't see terribly
1: much of it. Well, you look pretty remarkable. I mean, Well, thanks. I do have a ring-like
0: makeup,
1: you know? I want to talk about the beauty industry for a minute and also expectations of what women do. I was at an event and I saw some woman who used to be brunette and she was blonde. And I was like, oh my God, I love your new hair color. And she starts explaining why she did it and how the process works. And her husband, who they've been married for 30 or 40 years, goes, I don't want to hear it. It has to be magic. I don't want to know, and walked away. And I was like, "What is that part of our beauty expectations in this culture, that it has to be invisible how we got to look the way we look.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. We are supposed to, well, again, I think this is where you best understand how objectified we are as women, because we are supposed to, we are nature, and like nature, we change, right? Um, yet we're supposed to stay the same as an object would, as a, as a piece of art, you know we are purchased at this stage, and please stay that effortlessly. Um, yeah, and, and I think guys really get really freaked out when they. I have friends. I have lots of friends that do little little tweaks and little things here and there when their husbands are out of town for business. <laughs> totally right. And their husbands will never know, and they will just think they're effortlessly beautiful. And you know, I I. I I I understand it because there's such a, there's so much shame. There's so much shame if you're a woman. There's shame if you do tweak and if you do something for, you know, trying to remain the same, which society expects you to do and wants you to. And then there's shame if you just let go. So
1: like, there's no way for us to win, really. It's a triple bind. Yeah. You know, you talk in the book about some of the men you encountered and fashion photographers, and we can talk about that. One of the things that I really struck me is when you were coming up in the business, fashion and beauty and women's body standards were really set by men, it seemed. There were still female editors at magazines, but in the industry. And now we look at the world and beauty and body standards are set by the Kardashians in part, right? And it's women who are participating in this. And I I think there's a lot that's great about the Kardashians, to be honest. I do, I know I'll get criticized for saying that. But when it comes to like the body images that they post, it's impossible to achieve. Some of it looks like anime cartoon figures. Yeah. What do you say to pe- to the Kardashians who are putting out body images that are as destructive possibly for women as anything that you grew up with?
0: Well, it's really not for me to say anything to them, is it? It's like, it's their bodies. If this is the way they want to portray themselves, uh, then that's the way that they should be able to the celebrate and do whatever the hell they want. I really think it's up to us, the consumers of watching them, uh, whether we want to purchase that thought, whether we want to go that way, whether, you know, do we support it? Do we not support it? I mean, it all ultimately lies in in your wallet, doesn't it? If it makes money, it's going to be sold to you. And do you have a theory
1: why, now that we all know how constructed everything is, you know, kids know that there are filters and they look for how things have been auto-tuned, why do we still go for it? Like, why do women still want the thing that they know is unattainable and faked?
0: I don't think that we want to go for the unattainable and the faked. I think what we want... Is to feel a little better about ourselves I think it's just uh, you know you're, you're, you're told how important the way you look is in society every woman that I know would will, will not be object to being called beautiful or even pretty which is a small word um, and you know if a filter can give us a, a one day of pretty get get one pretty comment one beautiful comment I can see how it's worth it, you know. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's like a little drop of love, dare I say? You know, acknowledgement. Somebody sees you. Somebody sees you, and yeah. So maybe it's not the real you, <laughs> but maybe you feel like the real you will never be seen.
1: Do you think our culture is changing? Because I feel like younger men who grew up with working moms are a little different. Like, they have this expectation that women will work, that women will have their own agency in a different way. I feel like it might be in our era it was one way, but I'm a little more optimistic about younger women and men.
0: I agree. I think that the world is changing, and I think it's changing for the better. I think girls are no longer growing up being told that they need to be nice all the time, you know, be nurturing, be sweet, um, be obliging. Like, you know, now, now a lot of a lot of people are raising their girls to be tough. You know, badass is a fairly recent term. Um, you know, being a badass girl, uh, and and that's yes, finally great. And of course, you know, look, I have two sons, I have two boys, 29 and 24, and. Uh, their ideal uh beauty the the uh, their ideal woman of beauty has nothing to do with the uh, you know giggly obliging little girl i mean they both really go for badass women as uh, as i'd say and i think this is also but in part you know is it's partly peer uh and partly what you see at home again you know but if your mom is you know, if your mom is always a woman that's obliging the dad and does all the housework and all the cooking and says yes, um, they're that's the tra- more traditional female role, then that is what those sons will keep thinking women are supposed to be. So, um, but it is, it is changing. It is changing for the better. And so you're right. Yeah. We have, we have good reason to have hope here.
1: What do you think is the biggest problem in beauty culture right now? Or that if you were raising young girls, you would be mindful of?
0: Well, I have, I have uh, a bunch of step granddaughters and I have, uh, goddaughters, young women. So I'm sort of aware, like what they're dealing with and what, um, what, the you know, what they look at, what they want to be seen as, and what. uh their perception of beauty is. And you know what? If I had daughters, you could the only thing you can do is sort of model, by example, you know, with your own self-acceptance, your descriptions of how you describe other women. If you're going to be catty about it and go, well, she's attractive, but, you know, her thighs. Yeah. Yeah, your daughter's going to pick up the same idea and she's going to go and auto-tune her thighs on her filter on Instagram. You know, it all... This is this is where we learn this Is 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 the the, the the basic place we learn is from our parents and, and it's not you know you can you can tell your kids embrace your beauty and feel beauty feel beautiful because you are your princess you're the best you can do anything but then if you're sl- slamming other people that's that's what's entering their souls so you know it's a it's a hard job to be a parent should be a hard job
1: to be a parent. You said that one of your goals now is to lead a life that is loving. What does that mean?
0: Well, still figuring that one out, quite honestly. I mean, it sounds really good on paper, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it. Yeah, me too. Um, what it means in my day to day life is, and okay, I've been thinking, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this too, which is about self love, because being alone now and sometimes very. Very very lonely, isolated alone, I've never been alone before in my life i'm fifty seven and I've always been with other people that needed me and now nobody needs me. My children have flown the coop and I'm single and I'm all by myself and I don't have anybody to come home and share things with and it's sometimes it's really sad and so I get a lot of um, a lot of feedback from people that are like self-love It's all about self-love you need to love yourself, you need to you know be your own best friend. La 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 And I always think, well I I'm not I'm not so sure I agree with that. I mean, if of course, you know, I think accepting yourself for who you are is it's something that we really should work on. That's something that's like a, a that's a great goal is self acceptance. But I feel like love, actual love, should be turned outward. Like love in the vacuum, what well, what well what's the point? If I lock myself in the closet and not love myself, what good is that to anybody, including myself? Um, so that's what I mean with loving life is I mean, take the love I have and direct it out. Because that's how you, that's how the container replenishes, right? It's like you give and you get back. It's not
1: about holding it closed and saying, eh, that's it, self-love. Got it. Isn't there a concept of you need to generating self love is the way you generate love for others as well? Like you are the source stone. Yes, yes. Through that inner experience, you can then yeah share that with others.
0: I agree. And so there's there's a there's a whole conversation about this that I and I haven't quite narrowed it down. All I know is that I have encountered a lot of people that are very self loving. Their containers filled with love for themselves, and then they put a lid on it and go. What yes
1: absolutely your lid overflows that sort of self love i'm not that into and you finally you've said that you believe in a life with purpose that's the biggest thing and what does that mean to you and is it is it purpose as a goal instead of say happiness well
0: this comes about from just again thinking being so immersed in you know grief and trauma and what is happiness and what is joy and gratitude and I was just kind of sorting out to all of these emotions and and my husband when our marriage was completely tanking used to say um why can't you just be happy as that that was the solution to our disintegrating marriage was because i couldn't be just happy and i kept thinking but like you're not just you know happiness like, it, it doesn't just happen from nowhere, right? And 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 actions have consequences, and there's two of us in the marriage, so now I can just blithely go about and be happy. But he thought, he genuinely thought that he was happy, and the only problem in our marriage was that I was not happy. And I just need to get to this point where I'm happy. Um, and so I have an issue with people that go, just be happy or i just want to be happy i just want my children to be happy because so i feel like well happiness is permanent happiness is a unattainable um there's happiness is is ephemeral it's just a it's short little burst um that that's not something if you live for that you're going to be constantly disappointed by life because you're never always going to be happy and and like is that even possible and is that even good um purpose purpose is what gives you a reason to live and I think with your purpose comes those little rays of happiness um, it the moments of joy and the gratitude that I think you know that that's the reason to live not not this you know live to be happy
1: Well, we sense your purpose in this book. It's beautiful. It's moving. And I think for so many people, it'll be a real source of feeling seen and connected in a different way. You're just a really special person. And I'm grateful for this book and for your time today.
0: Oh, Jessica, thank you so much. And
1: ditto, so much ditto to you. Thanks for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe or follow this podcast on your favorite podcast app. And you can follow me at Jessica Yellen on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at NewsNotNoise on YouTube and TikTok. You can subscribe to the NewsNotNoise letter at newsnotnoise.bulletin.com. And you can support this work on Patreon.com slash NewsNotNoise so I can keep giving you information, not a panic attack.